I invite you to remain standing and turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 6. If you're using one of the church's Bibles, you'll find that on page 863. We're going to look at verses 37 through 49, um, the end of chapter 6 this morning. Beloved saints, this is God's perfect and eternal word. Uh, It is worthy of our attention. It is worthy of our reception of it and our obedience to it. So let us give our full and undivided attention to the reading of God's word. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show him what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when a flood arose, the streams broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, Immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Uh, Let us pray that God would bless our time in his word this morning. Lord Jesus, you know the darkness of our minds and hearts. You know our fears and our doubts. Flood this darkness with the light of your grace and peace. Open our minds to your truth. Grant us hope. Grant us faith, increase our understanding, and allow us to receive you through your word. Let your love shine through the pages of your scriptures, and may your spirit be with us as we read and hear. May he grant us that we might delight in all we encounter in your word. Amen. You may be seated. I think that Luke 6.37 may be one of the best known verses in the Bible. Think about how many times you hear it quoted, and not to mention how many times you quote it. Judge not, and you will not be judged. 
If you really want to sound holy, what do you do? You quote the King James, Judge not, and ye will not be judged. And then people know you're really serious. It's a verse we all know. In fact, we can just quote the first two words of this verse, and that pretty much does it. We look at someone, judge not, and people know what we mean. But we'll just be honest with ourselves for just a moment. Do we use it to stop ourselves from judging others, or do we quote it to silence those who would judge us? And then one day, you dust off that thing, it's called the Old Testament, and you read through Leviticus, and you come to chapter 19, verse 15, and it says this, You shall do no injustice in court, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. In righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. What do you do then? How do you square this with judge not and you will not be judged? So it's easy. We have our our little ways of dealing with things like this. We say, oh, that's the Old Testament. It's obsolete. It doesn't apply to us. That was for the Jews. The God of the New Testament is kinder and gentler, you know, less judgy. But is that really what God says? That he's changed? That he's different today than he was yesterday? That some scripture is profitable and the rest should just be ignored? We know that that's not the solution. Maybe our problem is that we haven't rightly understood one or both of these passages. Maybe the problem isn't with God. Maybe it's with us. Maybe this passage isn't meant to protect us from the scrutiny of others, but to call us to honesty and to integrity and to humility. Maybe the goal of this passage isn't meant to teach us how to guard ourselves from others, but how to guard others from ourselves. And that's exactly what's going on. And yet, as is so often the case with God, there is hope and there is comfort here in this passage. It's beautiful. As we look at it this morning, my hope is to to uh, show you that really what this, this whole passage is saying is something like this. Freedom from judgment is only found in freely submitting to judgment, the judgment of the Lord. In other words, if you want to find freedom from being judged, then you need to run to it and freely submit to it, and that's where you'll find freedom. That might sound a, a little paradoxical at first, but I trust we'll get there as we open up God's word together. Uh, the first thing I want to do is focus on what God is warning against, uh, namely hypocrisy. I want to look at that. And then from there, we want to see that far from being opposed to what God said in Leviticus 19, that Jesus is actually repeating what Leviticus 19 taught. And then finally, we want to reflect on God's amazing way of bringing beauty out of ugliness, life out of death, and actually freedom out of judgment. That's what we want to see as we open God's word together this morning. Uh, The focus of our passage, of what Jesus is saying in Luke 6, is found in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? That's the focus of this passage. He's talking about hypocrisy. 
They're saying one thing, but doing another. Uh, their lives are, are not matching up with their words, with their rhetoric. Uh, hypocrisy is typically defined as pretending to be what uh, you're not. Or claiming to have a moral standard, but not uh, following it. And I think those definitions are fine as far as they go, but I think there's more to it. Um, I think hypocrites know the right standard, and, and even to a certain degree, they appreciate the right standard. The problem with hypocrisy is that the allegiance of the hypocrite does not go deep. It's only surface level. There are those who recognize Jesus for who he is. They recognize him to be the Lord. And we'll come back to, to what that means. But at least clearly we, we can acknowledge that it, it recognizes authority. And yet with hypocrisy, that acknowledgement fails to produce any significant change. Jesus is pushing this. Because with the hypocrite, once you go past appearances, once you go below the surface, what you see is not pretty. Jesus is saying something like, if I was really your Lord, your life would change. Frankly put, they claim to seek his glory, but really are only seeking their own. And that's the heart of hypocrisy. It's, it's claiming to serve righteousness when in reality you are serving yourself. And our passage has a host of images to illustrate this. Hypocrites are like blind people trying to lead blind people, uh, and then they stumble into a pit. They're like a diseased tree trying as it might to produce uh, good fruit, but it can't because the tree is rotted to the core. They're like thorn bushes and brambles who wish to be recognized as vineyards, but can't produce a single grape. Their hearts are evil because they treasure what is evil. Finally, they're, they're like a beautifully built house that has no foundation. It goes up quick, and those who see it, at first they admire it because it looks so beautiful. But the one who built it did not go deep. He didn't dig down and, and lay a firm foundation. And so the house can't stand up when the winds and the rains come. When the river floods and, and, and batters the side of that house, it, it washes away and just crumbles because it was not well built. It didn't go deep. And to illustrate what this looks like in practice, he talks about logs and specks in verses 41 and 42. The, the hypocrite claims to care about what is good and right, about, about morality and righteousness. But the hypocrite really only cares about appearances. And so his life is like a house built without a foundation. He doesn't go deep into his own heart and life and hold himself to the same standard. He only holds others to that standard. And so he points out failures in others while not acknowledging his own, even when his own failures are much bigger. If failures were wood, the hypocrite's failures would be like a, a huge log, and the failures of others would be like a speck of sawdust. And the hypocrite is blind 
to the deeper truth, to what really matters. He can't see what everyone else can, that he is the greater violator of the standard he claims to hold so dear. He keeps yelling about specks of dust, oblivious to the fact that there's, there's a tree growing out of his face. Last Sunday, fueled by a sense of self-righteousness, I got angry with one of my daughters for not dealing with a concern of hers graciously. And her question to me was simple. How can you expect me to respond graciously when you can't? She was right. I was straining at the speck in her eye, oblivious to the log in my own. I wasn't really interested in defending righteousness, but vindicating myself. And she saw through it. How could she not? But I don't think I'm alone. How many sermons have you heard and thought to yourself, you know who really needs to hear this? How many of you have said that to me? How many people come into my office and say, Pastor, what can we do about my husband, my daughter, uh, my wife, my parent? I don't think I've ever had one person come in and say, I'm really struggling with someone I love. And I'm sure it's probably my own hypocrisy. Can you help? I can't see clearly. Can you help me get the log out of my eye? How different a place would the world be if we approached situations like that? True morality is not what you hold other people to. It's what you hold yourself to. And that leads us to another important word, integrity. It's the opposite of hypocrisy. Integrity goes deep. It means that what people see on the outside is actually what's on the inside. It's who you are regardless of who's watching. Integrity is when you hold yourself to a higher standard than you hold others to. Integrity is when you address failure in yourself before you address it in others. The word literally means wholeness. It's when you're the same all the way through. No matter how deep people uh, probe, how deep they look, they just keep finding more of the same. And Jesus gives us a number of images of, of what those with integrity look like as well. He says they're like a good tree that naturally produces good fruit. Since fruit comes from inside the tree, the goodness of the tree can't help but be reflected in the fruit it produces. He says that at the center of someone with integrity is a good heart that treasures what and who is good above all else. Such a person is like a house that is built right. It has a foundation that goes deep. It's laid on rock that doesn't move rather than shifting sand. And when floods come, they can't move it because its foundation goes deep. The one who has integrity doesn't change. 
He's the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. And we hear that. And we know we're in checkmate because who can claim such a thing but God? But did you see what verse 40 said? Everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. When you're fully trained, beloved, you will be like God. A mind that believes only the truth. A heart that treasures only what is good. And a life that does only what is right. What's Jesus after? Many of us think that the Christian life's about going to church on Sunday and hearing a sermon and maybe reading uh, your Bible during the week, but that there's a little more. When Jesus says, judge not, what, what is he really saying? He's talking about your life. He's saying, are, are you more critical of others than you are of yourself? Do you claim a high moral standard but only hold others to it? Do you focus on the failures more than on your own? Are you quick to critique, but slow to repent? Going back to where we started, I want to ask, is that really at odds with what Leviticus 19 says when it says, in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor? Is Jesus contradicting Leviticus? Or is he just ignorant of it? Probably not. I mean, he quotes Leviticus 19 all the time because that's where we find the, the verse, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, that verse, Leviticus 19.15, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, really summarizes that whole chapter. It's Because it's there that God told his people that they were not to, to harvest their fields up to the very edge, but leave the edges undone for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, those who were in need. It's in Leviticus 19 that they were told to show integrity in all their dealings with one another, to use just weights and measures. It's there they were told not to put a stumbling block before the blind. It's there that they were told uh, not to take vengeance. And on and on the list goes, and they're all similar. It's about integrity and honesty and compassion for others and not giving yourself preferential treatment over others. And then God closes this big, long list of commands by saying, you shall observe all my statutes and rules and do them. I am the Lord. And when you hear that list, you realize it sounds an awful lot like Luke 6. All the same stuff. Love your neighbor. Don't seek vengeance. You're not the standard. God is. Don't say one thing and do another. Hold yourself to a higher standard than you hold others. God's problem is not with judgments. It's with hypocritical, self-serving judgments. Because God has never made critical, self-serving judgments. And so they are totally unfitting for any who claim to follow him. Because according to Leviticus 19, to act contrary to his commands is to profane his name. Simply put, why would anyone claim to follow the Lord and then act completely contrary to his character? Isn't that what Jesus says in Luke 6? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? 
Really, it's basically just a quote of the end of Leviticus 19. But did you notice Jesus doesn't say, why do you claim to follow the Lord and not do what he says? He says, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? He's saying that he's the one who spoke to Israel in Leviticus 19. He's not simply quoting the command to love your neighbor as yourself. He's telling them he's the author of it. Far from saying something different from Leviticus 19, Jesus is reminding his people of what he had said centuries before. And so in Luke 6, that day on the plain, as he's preaching this sermon, these people are seeing and hearing the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. He stands before them and he's reminding them that he's not interested in lip service or half-hearted commitments. He was putting them on notice that he judges hearts and has no patience for hypocrisy and double standards. What's being said is not new and neither is the one who is saying it. They are hearing a sermon from the ancient of days, the eternal one, the creator of all things. So if that's not new, what is new in our passage? That's an important question. But before we answer it, let's admit how we usually read this passage. First, we are more apt to quote it to others than we are to ourselves. When people are challenging sin in our life, we say, don't judge. Jesus says, We use it to serve ourselves, the very opposite of what it's intended to do. Second, we find ways around that when we see things that bother us and others and we give pious-sounding reasons on why we have to deal with it. Well, if I don't say something, it will never be addressed. I can't let this stand. Maybe, perhaps. But the question is, have you removed the tree growing out of your face before addressing the sawdust in your brother's eye. If we're honest, if we put aside our typical self-serving filters for reading it, if if we just let it truly address our hearts, our minds, our lives, if we let God's holiness show forth our response to this passage might be something more along these lines. Is there any hope for me? If I was a tree, I'd be a bad tree, which is why there's so much bad fruit in my life. I'm all thorns, and how am I ever going to produce grapes? I treasure things that the Lord would never have anything to do with. In my heart, it's deceitful and it's wicked and I don't know how to change. Beloved, the reason the subject of judgment bothers us so much is because of our guilty conscience. And we know that the guilt runs deep. It it goes to our very heart And we know that we don't just need a new outlook, a mulligan, a new start, a new direction. What we need goes deep. We need a new heart. We need to be made new. We need to be new creations. We know that if God scrutinized us the way we scrutinize others, we would be without hope. 
And so we fear judgment. And yet judgment might just be our only hope. 1 Corinthians 11.31 says, If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. The road to salvation, the, the way of escape, is to freely enter into it. To confess all your sin, to admit all your guilt. To hold yourself accountable and stop worrying so much about others. And when you enter into judgment, you find another who, who already entered into judgment before you, Jesus Christ. But he didn't enter into judgment because of his guilt. He, he didn't stand condemned because of what he had done. He came to be judged because of our guilt. He came to pay our debt. He came to love us more than he loved his own life. And so he didn't answer every lie told about him. He, he didn't seek to protect himself. And he didn't get caught into the trap of, of believing, I have to address everything I see wrong or no one will. Because he accomplished more by laying down his life than all the, the, the pious corrective lectures in the world ever could. Through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave through his, his surrendered judgment for your sake, he made it possible for you to be a new creation and have all your guilt forgiven and wiped away. I want us to consider one more image that Jesus left us on the cross. On the cross, our Lord allowed himself to be dressed in thorns, which the Bible has used to picture the curse and our sin and our guilt from the beginning. And while he was wearing those thorns on the cross, one of the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, they took out a spear and pierced him deep in the side and blood poured forth. But it wasn't a surprise because the night before he had given his disciples a cup of wine made from grapes and told them it was a picture of his blood about to be shed for the remission of their sins. Do you see the image? Grapes coming from thorns. He has done what none of us could. And so he gives us hope that we can produce good fruit if we acknowledge our guilt and we surrender to him. If we come to him, he can make us a new tree that will produce good fruit. If we come to him, he will give us a new heart. If we build our lives on Jesus, we are building on something that cannot be shaken and no storm can destroy. So could there be a more fitting place for us to close this morning than at the Lord's Supper? Because here we have a reminder of that awful day when the Lord of glory was judged, condemned, and put to death, not for any guilt in him, but but for sin, for yours and for mine. And we're reminded that out of that ugly, thorny mess, he brought about a new reality, a new hope for sinners, a, a way to be made new and whole. And so he calls us to join him there. 
to not fear judgment, but to know that if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. To remember that that those who follow Christ hold themselves to a higher accountability than they hold others. That before we address sin in others, we need to address it in ourselves. But most importantly, to remember that even if we do this imperfectly, even if you wake up tomorrow morning resolved to do better and you fail, and the next morning you wake up resolved to do better and you fail, that you're not without hope. Because Jesus has called you his disciple and he has promised you that when he's done with you, you will be like him. I'd like to ask the elders and Pastor Brian uh, to come forward that we might receive our Lord's gift of the supper this morning.